Revival next Sunday. How many of you are making plans to be here for revival? It's going to be Sunday morning. We're going to have our picnic that evening or that afternoon. And then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday evenings at 6.30, Pastor Philip Corbett will be here in service with us. And I can promise you, you, you want to be here. You want to be here. We're going to see some amazing things. I, I'm just trusting God for miracles to take place during this revival. Uh, Pastor Corbett has already asked me to place special emphasis on our Wednesday evening service. Uh, It's going to be a time of praying for the sick. And I believe God's going to be here to perform miracles of healing in the lives of his people. How many of you believe God can still do that? I'm talking to the right people. You know, a couple of Sundays ago, we, uh, we presented gifts to honor our teachers and Tina wasn't here that Sunday, so Tina, would you come up here, please? This is the new librarian. Uh, she's trying to retire from being the debate coach that took her team to the Nationals this last year. Now, I understand you get to assist with that for one more year and pass on your expertise to whoever's taken over, right? But a librarian... So that means everything we do around here has to be done really quietly. (laughs) A token of our appreciation. Thank you for being there for our kids. And, boy, this is probably the best of all. Happy Grandparents Day. How many of you are grandparents? Just raise your hand. And how many of you who are grandparents would say to me, if you'd known your grandkids were going to be this wonderful, you'd have just skipped the kids and went on to the grandparents? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Uh, We do honor our grandparents today, and we say thank you. And you know, there's never been a time when our kids need both parents and grandparents to speak into their lives the things that God would have them to to know and to be during the course of their lives. So thank you, grandparents, for the wonderful role that you fill. You might perhaps notice this morning that, once again, we featured some songs in our worship service that are, yeah, they're kind of old in terms of contemporary uh, choruses, but we did that with a very specific reason in mind. We are doing a series that we are entitling Passionate Worship. You might have heard me say a couple of weeks ago that I have uh, purposed in my life and ministry that every year I'm going to do a sermon series on worship and the importance of it. And by the way, our older children's church kids, you are dismissed to go to children's church. Melissa's back there waiting for you, and uh, we'd love to have you uh, uh, go with her and just uh, enjoy what she has for you today. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, but we, we, I want us to become people of worship. And I know that in the world in which we live, uh, even though as those songs that we've been singing tell us that we were created to be instruments of worship, people of worship, in the lives that we live, sometimes it's difficult to, to remember the importance of worship. Worship isn't just something we do on a Sunday morning. You don't just live on Sunday morning, right? You live seven days a week. And if you were created to be an instrument of worship, that means that you need to be a worshiper 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. You worship God wherever you are. And that doesn't mean you, you're jumping up and down and swinging from a chandelier or even having your arms raised everything in everything that you do. It means that everything that you do testifies to the fact that Jesus lives within you. And, of course, then when we have those opportunities to come together in corporate worship, man, I, I believe it ought to be a celebration. Uh, you know, the Jewish people, they practiced their worship and focused their worship on, on seven feasts throughout the course of the year. And let me tell you something. If, if you do a study on, on the festivals uh, for the Jewish people in the Word of God, those were blowouts. I mean, they didn't withhold anything. They ate, they partied, they did everything. And I think that's what God wants us to be. I, want, I think he wants us to be Christian party animals. Is that okay? And let me tell you what. When, you, when, you get, when we all stand before Jesus in heaven, we're not going to stand there with somber faces. We're not going to act like we were just baptized in dill pickle juice. We're going to be giving praise to the king. And it's going to be loud. And it's going to be long. And it's going to be worth it. Amen. So my, my thinking is, if you're going to worship like that when you stand before the throne, you may as well get in practice down here. Amen. Psalm 95 is where I want you to go with me this morning. <coughs> Excuse me for the coughing. Psalm 95. But before I get there, how many of you... Uh, how many of you like to vacation? Probably all of us. I, I, like, I like traveling, especially if it's a road trip. Now, that doesn't mean I don't fly or don't like to fly. I just like seeing all the sights that I might miss if I were to fly. Um, however, that being said, we discovered a couple of years ago, Brenda and I did, that traveling by train is not considered to be a vacation. Has anybody ever done that? Uh, never again. No more train travel for this guy. I had it. Uh, so I don't prefer flying. I'm not going to do train. I love road trips. And that brings me to a road trip that I also learned something from several years ago. Brenda and I were uh, traveling with some very good friends of ours. Uh, we were going to the eastern part of the state of Tennessee. Um, this, this whole story, by the way, gives me mixed feelings about vacationing, even road trips. Um, the idea of sleeping in a foreign bed just does not work well for me. I, I don't do motels or hotels well because I guess I've become so accustomed to my bed at home and and, and you know Brenda Brenda listened to the commercials that you see 15 times a day about my pillow and she got us those my pillows you know and and so everywhere that we go now my pillow goes with me I'm used to it but I'm not used to the bed and and sometimes staying in a motel or hotel can take the joy out of traveling um, but if I'm, if I'm staying in the same place for a number of nights, we always try to find a little bit, I don't want to say more upscale, but a little nicer hotel, just 
than ones we would stay in if we were just out traveling the highway and just need to, to pick up a few hours of sleep. I don't, I don't care about all the amenities, you know, when I'm traveling. I just need a place to lay my head and catch a few winks and get up ready to go the next morning. But uh, anyway, such was the case when we were traveling with our friends to Tennessee a couple of years ago. We knew that it was going to be a two-day road trip each way, going and coming. It was going to take us two days. And so Larry, uh, the husband of the couple we were traveling with, he had picked out this cheap motel in which to stop and spend the night in some podunk one-dog town in eastern Missouri. It, it, was, it, was, it was located along I-40. And so the first thing I noticed was the noise of the traffic going by in very close proximity to the, ho- to the motel. And I, I'm notorious for being a light sleeper. Brenda accuses me of having transparent uh, eye, eyelashes, uh, or eye, eyelids, not eyelashes, eyelids, uh, because if a car drives by in the night, it wakes me up just because of the light. And so I'm thinking as we're driving into this little motel, there's going to be a lot of traffic noise here tonight. And, and so I'm, I'm automatically getting concerned and but at the same time, we weren't really concerned that, you know, we have a nice room. We just wanted that place to catch a few hours of sleep. Now, I don't remember the name of the motel, and that's probably good just in case some of you have stayed there. But for the sake of my story, I'm going to call it the Dream Lodge Hotel. Um, The signs out in front of the hotel actually, or motel, actually made it look fairly inviting, but the mood changed when we went into the office to check in. Now, it was was fairly late at night, and we knocked on the glass window, and the lady who responded to our knocking uh, came to the desk, and she didn't have a smile anywhere to be found. And... As a matter of fact, in all honesty, she looked bothered by the fact that we had interrupted whatever she was doing. So while waiting on Larry to check into his room, I started looking around the office of the motel, and and I saw this printed sheet of paper with a bunch of warnings and, and restrictions and prohibitions about things that aren't allowed at the motel. I'll just share with you a couple that I remember The first one said, if you say you have one person in your room and you have two, you're going to be kicked out. Another one, absolutely no check-ins after 11 p.m. So the first thing I did is I looked at my watch, and we were just not too far from 11 p.m., so maybe that explained the frown on her face. But the one that really got me, the one that really concerned me, it says, if you have an emergency, don't call the office. Call 911. Well, after I checked into, my, into our room, I figured out that that was going to be hard to do because they didn't have any working phones. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the fact it's just a place to stay. But I got to tell you, after I saw all of that, I wasn't sure I wanted to stay there. I mean, who knows what might happen during the course of the night. The Dream Lodge, the Dream Motel had 16 rooms, and I counted 13 rules and regulations. 
<laughs> but we were so tired that we just checked in, went to bed. So none of that stuff really came to be a problem. But we did share a lot of laughter about it and a lot of poking fun at Larry for his choice of motels for the rest of our trip. But the point that I've been working toward making, however, is that each of us, both Larry and Christy and Brenda and I, felt like the motel would have been just as happy to not have any guests stay there that night. By emphasizing the rules, they took the joy out of their service. Are you with me? They may have had a sign by the road that said and flashed, Welcome, but that invitation seemed kind of hollow once we took a closer look. Now, having made this point, let me say thank you for not asking me how I come up with illustrations like that to tie into a scripture passage that I'm about to share with you. But hopefully I can, I can pull that together for you here in just a moment. I, I thought about the Dream Lodge Motel when I read the words, especially the beginning of Psalm 95. Um, it begins with just a simple word. What is it? Come. Come. What a great word. You know, God longs for us to come into his presence. He's not concerned about laying down a bunch of rules and requirements for coming into his presence. But instead, Jesus tells, talks about it in John chapter 4, verse number 23, when he said that God is seeking worshipers who will adore him or worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, God is, when I say he's seeking, he's saying, come. Come to me. Uh, how many of you would be surprised if I told you that God desires our presence more than we desire His. That's why He created us. To fellowship with us. To communicate with us. And He sends out this invitation, come. He wants us to come without hesitation. Think about it. We're invited into the presence of the Creator of the universe. Now, what obviously you figured out by now that what I'm trying to do in this sermon series is to paint for you a picture of how awesome God is. And in spite of how awesome He is, He wants us to be a part of His awesomeness. That's what worship is being a part of of all of, that God is and all that God is doing. This is part three of the sermon series, Passionate Worship, and today I want to give you six characteristics of God's call to worship. You're already in Psalm 95, diligently waiting on me, so here we go. Come. Let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, 
a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep under His care. But then the tone of the psalm changes. The psalmist says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massah in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your invitation, Lord, to come into your presence. Thank you, Lord, for making us worthy to stand in the presence of the King of Kings. Lord, anoint my words this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, worship is what I want to call collective. Three times in verse number one and two, we read the description, let us. Collectively, let us. There it is. Let us shout joyfully. Let us shout triumphantly. Let us enter his presence. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. Now, while worship has and should have, (coughs) excuse me, obviously a private element to it throughout the week, the psalmist here is stating that worship is designed to also be congregational, not merely individual. Secondly, worship is vocal. Too often we think that worship as, as being something that, that is private and silent. Now I know, I realize that everyone worships differently, and while it's perfectly acceptable to, to worship God in our heart or even sing quietly, God is longing for His people to sing out to Him. He wants us to to vocalize our worship. If you've ever attended a a conference or a convention where there were professional worship teams leading worship, there's something powerful that takes place uh, when you experience a large, large group of people coming together and participating, singing their hearts out to God. Worship is vibrant. Worship is vigorous. We are to participate with joyful, grateful praise and to be exuberant in our worship. Someone has said the characteristic of Old Testament worship is that it was expressed with exhilaration. Uh, The psalmist himself gives proof to that. The terms that the psalmist uses here uh, describe activity which seems more appropriate at a professional football game than in a church sanctuary. Now, I say that very specifically because 
If you've ever been to a football game, whether it be college football game or even, even some high school football games, but especially a professional football game, you see people doing things that they wouldn't be caught dead doing anywhere else. Cheering on their team. And I'm thinking, you know, if we can do that at a football game, why can't we do it in the presence of the Lord? Uh, we, we get so conservative and, and, and so inward sometimes when we come together to worship God. And yet, whether it's sitting in our living room or in the midst of 80,000 fans in a stadium, we have no problem whatsoever jumping up and down and making an idiot of ourselves watching somebody carry a pig across the goal line. <laughs> I better move on. When we're told to shout triumphantly in the second half of verse number one, the Hebrew word that's used there literally means to raise a shout. This is what the people of Israel would do when they were anticipating a battle or celebrating a triumph in battle. If you go to Joshua chapter number 6, verse number 20, yeah, that familiar story of, of Jericho and the walls of Jericho getting ready to tumble to the ground. If you look at Joshua 6.20, when the Israelites were marching around those walls of the city of Jericho, the Bible tells us that the people shouted, the trumpets sounded. When they heard the blast of the trumpet, the people gave a great shout. And the wall collapsed. You think God doesn't hear our worship? It's also found in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse number 5. There that we read that when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, His dwelling place, entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground began to shake. Have you ever experienced that? I'll never forget... September 11, 2002, one year after 9-11 and the horror of, that happened in New York City, Brenda and I, along with her parents, were sitting in the old Yankee Stadium commemorating the anniversary of 9-11. Well, we weren't there to commemorate the anniversary of 9-11. We were there to watch the Yankees and the Red Sox. Let me just be honest. And matter of fact, let me be even more honest. You can pass this on to Jeremy. We were there to watch the Yankees beat the Red Sox. But we weren't the only ones. There was a capacity crowd, 54,000 people, there to commemorate that solemn occasion and to watch the Yankees and the Red Sox play. And I'll never forget it. It was the top of the ninth inning. The Yankees were ahead one to nothing. They had scored a run way back in the first inning, and it had been a pitcher's duel for the rest of the game. And, and the Yankees took out their starting pitcher, and the loudspeakers began to blast the song Sandman by Nirvana. Now, for those of you who don't know what that means, that means that Mariano Rivera, the greatest closer to ever play baseball, is getting ready to come in and try to close the game out for the Yankees. That old stadium, when, when that song began to play, everybody in the stadium stood to their feet and started jumping up and down and shouting and, cla and clapping. And I'm telling you, you could feel 
the stadium begin to shake. It gives me chills just to think about the fact that when we stand before Jesus, millions of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue start shouting, holy, holy, holy. Let me tell you what. It ain't Mar- what happened with Mariano Rivera that day ain't going to hold a candle to what's going to happen on that day when we stand before the throne. You talk about chills running up and down your back. You're going to be a, a complete chill yourself because it's going to be such an amazing event. I can hardly wait. Friends, I don't know why our worship isn't as vibrant and vigorous as what we even see here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp. I don't even know why my own worship is sometimes somber. Maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe, that's, maybe it's a sign of the times that we, we've become more introverted than we, have be, uh, than we are extroverted. But maybe we find ourselves getting into, as I do, worship in a rut. How many of you have ever felt like you're worshiping in a rut? It just, and, and I, I know why that happens with me. It's because my mind isn't focused on him. I'm bringing all of this other stuff from the, from the week behind me or maybe the anxiety of the week ahead of me. I'm bringing it into my worship experience and I'm not, I'm not locked into worship as I ought to be. And, and so I just kind of go through the motions and sing the songs, and, and I don't get anything out of it. I, I, I fear that too many churches have, have become that. And, and so, tragically, what's happened in a lot of churches is we feel like, well, if we, if we turn the music up and we turn the lights down and, and, and we have lasers flashing and we have fog coming up from the, the, the platform, maybe that'll get us in the atmosphere of worship. That's the way the world does it. I mentioned to you last week, as a pastor, one thing that really concerns me is that we've tried to bring the world into the church rather than the church influencing and impacting the world with our worship. Whether or not those things are fine or good, Jacob, I know you have some opinions on that. I I certainly do. But I know this. I don't need all those things to worship Jesus. He alone, He alone is all I need to be in humble awe and surrender before Him. You know, maybe it's because we don't have the joy that we need in our hearts as we should have. I'm not sure what all the reasons are why we don't worship as exuberantly as what they did in the Old Testament. But i got to tell you, I'm challenged by this psalm to become more expressive, at least, when I worship the King of Kings. Another even more concerning thought that comes to my mind is, is why is it that we're often critical of others who we consider their worship to be too animated? Too exuberant. Boy, I got humbled on that when I was a, a young adult. I was uh, coordinating Christian artists to come to Garden City to, to do concerts for our young people. 
bringing in some of the big Christian artists of that day, and we were having great crowds, and of course in southwest Kansas you get a draw from many small communities. I mean, we had people coming in from northwest Kansas, and one of the guys that came in from northwest Kansas uh, furnished a, a keyboard for one of the musicians, and so I had an opportunity to meet with him, and we were talking about you know, the, the, the trends of worship of the day. And, and somehow or another, we got around to talking about how some people worship more, exurban, more exuberantly, while others peop, other people worship reservedly. And he told me something that literally shocked me to the core of my being. He said, yeah, Sometimes we consider people who worship exuberantly as being fanatics. And I, I don't remember whether I agreed with that or, or not. It was just a statement that was tossed out. But he, he then continued. He said, you know what a fanatic is, don't you? And I said, well, I think I do, but what do you, what do you think it is? And he said, anybody that loves Jesus more than you do. Wow. Kind of changed my view of you tossing that term around too loosely from then on. Anybody that loves Jesus more than you do. I've never forgotten that. You know, our, our tendency has become to react against such worship. I mean, if you, if you go on in that 2 Samuel chapter number 6 where the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the camp, you'll find that Saul had a daughter who was married to the psalmist David. Her name was Michael. And when she saw David worshiping exuberantly before the Lord, she was ashamed of him. And the Bible says that she disdained her husband because of his enthusiasm. In verse number 12 of 2 Samuel 6, that when David brought the ark into the city of Jerusalem, he did it with rejoicing. Verse number 14 then tells us that he danced before the Lord with all of his might. And verse 15 says that his worship was filled with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. And when Michael saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, verse 16 says... She despised him in her heart for the way that he was worshiping. David responded by saying to her that he was focused only on the Lord when he was expressing himself in worship. And he says in the last part of verse number 21, I will celebrate before the Lord. David didn't care how he looked to others. Because he was intent on fully engaging himself in wholehearted worship. Now, let me just set something straight before you get mad at me. I'm not trying to tell anybody how to worship. You worship the way you're comfortable worshiping. I'm just saying that we shouldn't worship based on what somebody else thinks of us when we worship. You celebrate before the Lord. And if it starts to look a, bit, a little bit fanatical, just tell somebody, 
Evidently, I love the Lord more than you do. No, don't do that. Don't do that. In the same fashion, we are to collectively express our worship vocally with vibrance and with exuberance. When we sing songs of praise, we should shout at an incredible level out of joyful gratitude to the rock of our salvation. As Oswald Chambers, the great theologian, puts it, I love this. He says, a joyful spirit is the nature of God in my blood. Wow, that is right. A joyful spirit is the nature of God in my blood. When God himself so penetrates our lives that we are consumed by a desire to worship him, we shouldn't be able to help but break into joyful praise. What else can bring us more joy than knowing that we belong to God? We belong to him. He saved us. He's done so much for us. And the best part is that the best is yet to come. That would get, a ba- that would get an amen in some Baptist churches that I know of. The best is yet to come. The fourth thing, worship is God-centered. And this is a good reminder for us at this point in this message because we're not to just get emotional. We're not just to sing loudly uh, for our sake. Our focus should not be on how worship makes us feel. Our worship has to be centered on God. In other words... God, my worship is designed to help you to feel good about what I'm bringing to you. Matter of fact, I'll go so far as to say this. If your focus is on doing something because somebody else is doing something, you're doing it not out of a heart of integrity because your worship is not on God. Your worship is not God-focused. It's on somebody else and what somebody else is doing. Notice those first two verses again. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Enter his presence with thanksgiving. Shout triumphantly to him in song. David danced and shouted, but he did it before the Lord. It was because of the Lord that he did it. We have to ensure that our music is Christ-centered and not man-centered. Instead of singing about how happy we are to be together worshiping God, the Psalms call us to sing directly to God. In other words, we're, we're, we're not to just talk about how we feel when we worship, but rather engage our body, our soul, our spirit, complete with our emotions in a total preoccupation with the rock of our salvation. Focusing on God. John Piper, well-known pastor of the Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, puts it this way. We believe that our joy shows the supremacy of God's value. If his greatness is the basis of our joy, then our joy is the evidence of his greatness. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Boy, I love that. Worship is found in truth. Verse 3 expresses God's rule in general terms. It says, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. 
We are to shout aloud, sing for joy, lift up the Lord in music and song, for He is supreme and His, His supremacy is the foundation for our joy. Think about that last statement again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's why that song that we sang last, I delight myself in you. Any of you ever been delighted about something? What, what, what happens when you're delighted about something? You're thrilled. You're happy. You delight yourself in God. You are telling him, God, you are the source, the sole source of my joy, my contentment. Verses 4 and 5 depict God's sovereignty even more specifically. He's in control of the creation. He's in charge of all that he's created, all that he possesses. The expressions, the depths, the peaks, the sea, the dry land, emphasize the totality of his creation and control of the earth. These are things that challenge us as humans and hold forth for us the promise of adventure, excitement, fascination, and mystery because God made it all and he made it for us to enjoy. All of those things. (laughs) Let me just say this. I think I can say it right because I don't have it in my notes. The world is not only the work of God's hands. The world is in his hands. The world's in his hands. The reason I tell you that is because it's easy for us to become distracted in our worship when we hear all the junk that we hear on TV, on the news. Matter of fact, let me give you a suggestion. Quit watching the news. I'm not saying I want you to be disinformed. I'm just saying it's gotten to the point where you can listen to one station and get depressed, and what do you do? You go turn on another station so you can get depressed all over again. It's negative. Ann Murray used to sing a song, Could Anybody Use a Little Bit of Good News These Days? Boy, she needs to publish it again. What, what I'm saying to you, friends, is, is, is God's in control. I don't care what the news says. There's nothing that happens in this world that is beyond his control. It's all happening just as he planned it. Do we like it? Probably not. But that doesn't mean he's concerned. He's not resorting to plan B or C. He's got the world in his hands. And he's like the A-team that I referenced in part one of this sermon series. You're going to love it when his plan comes together. You are. Therefore, our collective, vocal, vibrant, God-centered rejoicing has to be founded on the truth of who God is and what he has done. Often we experience this wide range of, of God's creation when we go on a vacation. Back to my vacation illustration. When we see the depths, when we view something like the Grand Canyon, now keep in mind, I've never viewed the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I have to ask Brenda what it looks like. 
Because I ain't getting within 75 feet of that edge, I'm telling you. Uh, that's, the, that's the honest to goodness truth. I'm standing back there 75 feet away from the edge, and Brenda's down there looking over like, and I'm thinking, are you crazy? So she has to tell me about these things, but, but <laughs> back to my story. We see the beauty. We, we see the beauty in the depths. We see the beauty and the majesty of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, or the Grand Tetons in Montana. We witness the vastness of the Pacific Ocean when we visit our grandsons out in California. And in order to get there, we have to drive over 500 miles of the driest, dreary desert you've ever wanted to see. All made by God. Such variety. Such creativity. And he's in control of it all. No matter where you go, God has already been there. The psalmist is calling each of us to rejoice in his awesome transcendence. But as I did when I read the scripture for you earlier, it's here that the tone of our worship must change. If you look again, beginning with verse number six and the last part and the first part of verse number seven, it does give us another invitation to worship. But this time it's a different kind of worship. It's a worship that we call reverence. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. Another translation says the sheep under his care. As we sang earlier, we're called now to worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. But notice the change in how the psalmist is writing. A change from enthusiastic and loud songs of joy to awe-inspired reverence and humility before God. He's moving from praise to prostration, that is, humble silence before God. In verse 1 and 2, the worshiper stands in God's presence shouting forth praise But now in verse number 6, the worshiper falls on his face before God in humbled silence. Worship, friends, involves both animated rejoicing and speechless reverence. Not only has the mood of this psalm changed, But so has its focus. Now no longer God our creator who is in view, but it's rather God is our redeemer. God our savior. We are the flock under his care, the people of his pasture. And God is the loving shepherd. The loving shepherd who pays such close attention That if 99 of us are engaged in worship, God's concern is with the one who's left the flock. God will leave the 99 
to go find the one who has wandered away, who is lost and perhaps in danger. And it's because he loves us so personally. That should cause every one of us to bow down and worship. Because you know what I've figured out by now, after 62 years, I finally figured it out? Every one of us have at one time or another wandered away in our worship. We've wandered away from putting our focus on God. And, and it, it's caused us to miss the excitement and the exuberance of, of joyful worship. But, I mean, Jesus hit it right. He said, you know what? The cares of this life... They have an impact on us. And sometimes we get so focused on the cares of this life and the things that are going on that we lose sight of the fact that God's still on the throne. And He is our loving shepherd. He's not content to leave us there. He's going to seek us out and He's going to restore us back to the worshipers that we were created to be. And bowing and kneeling helps us This will sound kind of silly, but it helps us to get low before God, which is really the essence of worship. He's up here, we're down here. It's the picture of servants bowing in humility before the Master. We accept our place before Him, that is humility, while acknowledging His place before us, His divinity. Both are necessary. Now, I find it interesting that the call for rejoicing is based upon God's sovereignty as creator in the first part of this psalm, and that the call for reverence in verse 6 is based upon our relationship with him as our great shepherd. I would think that it should have been the other way around, that we would rejoice over our relationship with him and then stand in awe because of the mighty deeds of his creation. That's what I would have thought, but... That's why God put it on the heart of the psalmist to write this rather than me. But here's where it hit me. All of a sudden, I figured it out. The deeper our relationship with God is, the more profound our sense of awe and reverence becomes. Do you get that? Think about that. The deeper our relationship with God is, the more profound our sense of awe and reverence before him becomes. This happened on a couple of occasions. Let me give you a couple of scriptural examples of what I'm saying. It happened on a couple of occasions with the disciples. One day, after Jesus had performed a miracle by providing more fish than the fishermen knew what to do with, you'll find in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse number 8, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. You remember the story? They were out fishing. They weren't having any success as fishermen. Jesus comes along and tells professional fishermen what they need to do in order to bring in a draft of fish. They do it, and they bring in more fish than they can handle. And Peter's so overwhelmed by what happened, he says, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. Knowing the Lord is the means to fearing Him. 
And when I'm talking about fearing him, I'm talking about a reverential fear. Not being afraid, a reverential fear. Experiencing God's caring hand in our lives should induce us to greater submission and reverence beforehand. And you'll, here, here's the whole point of why I'm making this point to you. You'll find that people who have little reverence for God quite likely have very little intimacy with Him. People who have little reverence for God quite likely have very little intimacy with Him. God wants a personal, intimate relationship with every one of us. Before we move on to this final part, just let me make the point that our corporate worship services should always contain elements of both of these kinds of worship. Expressive worship and contemplated reverence. And if someday, for example, if we would choose to add a a second service to our service schedule, I got to tell you, it's not going to focus on one type of worship to the exclusion of another. We should never do that. It has to be a blending of both, containing elements of of expressive rejoicing and reverence before God. And the reason I make that point is I've been in some churches that do that. One church is a, uh, one service is a a rejoicing, contemporaneous outpouring of worship, and the other you could hear a pin drop because of the awe and reverence. Shouldn't be that way. You don't have two different types of services. You don't have two different types of worship. You have both. And they have to both occur occur at times in every church. Praise, prostration, shout, silence, happiness, holiness, (coughs) rejoicing, and reverence. Quickly moving to a close. Verse 7 is a transition. The psalmist says, today if you hear his voice. On the, one hand, on the one hand, that concludes the first part of the psalm. But at the same time, it also serves as an introduction to the final call of the invitation. And that is a call to respond. I don't know if you, any of you have the message translation. If, if you have your smartphone, you can switch it to, your, to the message translation for what I'm getting ready to say to you. But on that verse 7, I love the message translation because it puts it this way. Drop everything and listen. <laughs> it, listen as he speaks. And don't turn a deaf ear. Drop everything and listen. There's also a change in the speaker. In the first seven verses, the psalmist has spoken. And now... In verse 8, we start to hear from God himself speaking, and he warns us against the dangers of a hardened heart. Look again at verses 8 through 11. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massah in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. I said they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways, so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Essentially what God wants in worship, friends, is this. That we would listen to his voice. And more than just coming together to sing, 
to live out what we hear from God. To live out what we hear. That's why we look at our entire service. Jacob leading us in the singing. The giving. The preaching. The praying. It's all worship. Worship is listening and responding to God's word as it goes forth in action, in word, in song, in giving. And God warns us. He warns us against the danger of developing a hard heart. And he does it by using a couple of illustrations from the nation of Israel's history. Specifically, God is referring to what happened when those who escaped slavery in Egypt, those who were a part of the exodus from Egypt... They started journeying toward God's promised land, but they never did get to possess the promised land. Do you know why? Because they had to wander in that desert for 40 years. Do you know why they had to wander? Well, that's a $100,000 question, isn't it? The reason why they had to wander. Masa and Meribah are not just geographical names that God tosses out here. They refer to two evils that took place, both of which characterize the conduct of God's people on their way to the promised land who had developed what I like to call hardening of the arteries. Masa is the Hebrew word for test. Meribah is derived from another Hebrew word for strife or contention. Exodus chapter 17, if you go back there, we're not going to take the time to read it, but it mentions the first instance of Massah and Meribah. God had recently set his people free from their bondage in Egypt by parting the Red Sea. They walked across on dry ground. You remember the story. And then the waters closed on the pursuing Egyptian army behind them. And they were on their way to the promised land. But in chapter 15, we find that the people were singing a song of praise to God for what he had done in delivering them from Egypt. And just two chapters later, in Exodus 17, when the Israelites began to get thirsty, they began to grumble at a place called Merah. And it was there that God sweetened the water, allowing them to drink, and then he gave them both manna and meat outside of their tent every morning to supply their daily need for food. But then in chapter 17 again, the people began to quarrel with Moses, God's leader, because they'd once again run out of water. Are you kidding me? God's parted the Red Sea. He sweetened embittered water, embittered water to allow them to drink it. And now they're thirsty again, and what do they begin to do? Rather than trusting God because of his past provision, they begin to grumble and complain to Moses. Moses told them, you're really grumbling against God. And then the people threatened to stone him. And then God instructs Moses to do something. He says, Moses, take your staff and strike that rock with this rod. And when he does, water gushes out and the people are able to drink. God then named the place Masa, the test, 
and Meribah because the people had grumbled and tested God. Another account, quickly, is found in Numbers 20. And here, only the term Meribah is used. The event is similar to the one in Exodus, but this happens nearly 40 years later when the people were just about to enter the promised land. Remember, the former generation, they've all died off now. They're ready to enter the promised land. And the people that are still there begin to once again grumble and complain, prompting Moses and Aaron to fall on their faces before God. And when they do so, God's glory appears to them. And God instructs Moses this time to speak to the rock so that water will come out. But Moses, being like many of us, didn't listen closely enough. And instead of speaking to the rock, he once again strikes the rock. Now God, because of his faithfulness, produces water from that rock, and the people were once again able to drink. But Moses, because he was angry over the people's grumbling and complaining and struck the rock rather than speaking to it, paid a big penalty. (laughs) Man, he's had to put up with these people for 40 years. They've been griping and complaining about everything for 40 years. How many of you would be just like Moses and you'd be frustrated too? Now, come on. Two of us. Well, let's have an altar call right now. He's frustrated. So he strikes the rock, and in doing so, he costs himself the promised land. Wow, that's a big penalty pay. But the other side of it, the time that part that I don't have time to talk about is that he walked away to his death and God accompanied him there and God buried him. Now, catch this. Moses wasn't allowed to lead God's people into the promised land. In Exodus 17, it was the people sinned. But in Numbers 20... It was the people and their leaders who sinned. Those two accounts, I believe, reveal a very common problem in every generation. We're all prone to grumble and to put God to the test. If the truth were known, each of us have been at one time or another demanding of God. We try to coerce Him into satisfying our wants. And while it's not wrong at all to ask God for help, we do have to be careful about our complaining attitudes when we don't get the help that we wanted from God. Testing and grumbling. Like Israel in the wilderness, our grumbling proves to be nothing more than a lack of trust in God. Massah and Meribah are historical events which expose this deep-seated and recurring tendency that we can become hardened in heart if we're not careful. That's why the psalmist says, do not harden your heart. That's why God says through the psalmist, do not harden your heart. The word as indicates that it's a Massah-like attitude of heart which God despises. So what's the ultimate message of the psalm? Worship, both by rejoicing and reverence. 
Our worship is based on God's sovereignty as creator. And if we worship God as our shepherd, then we have to follow him as the sheep of our pasture. Worship without obedience is worthless to God. Moses learned that the hard way. In fact, verse 10 says it makes God disgusted. Failure to worship through our obedience causes our hearts to harden, which is repulsive to God and destructive to us. Worship team, would you come? I don't know if you've ever read any of the writings of renowned Christian author Leonard Sweet. Not only read a couple of his books, but I've got, had the privilege of seeing him in person. Leonard Sweet said something at a conference that I was a part of that stuck with me. He says, we like to sing and praise God, but often we don't want to go beyond that. And here's what he said, the quote that has stuck with me. Our pews, or in our case, our chairs are occupied by people who want to be moved, but who don't want to move. Did you catch that? Our chairs are occupied by people who want to be moved, but who don't want to move. Let's make sure our worship always leads to action. Always leads to action. Come to our worship services. Whenever we gather together, come not wanting to be moved, but with a commitment to move and do whatever it is that God calls us to do. Would you bow with me, please? (coughs) Lord Jesus, worship is such a, a huge topic. Lord, I found, as I know you have, that worship is one of those issues that can either endear a pastor to his congregation or cause them to want to find another pastor for their congregation. More more divisions more disagreements, more more decisions to leave one church to go to another have come about as a result of worship than probably any other topic. And God, forgive us for that. Because true worship has never been nor ever will be about how we feel. True worship is how you feel in response to our action of rejoicing and reverence before you. So, Holy Spirit, this morning what I'm asking of you is to soften our hearts. Hearts that have been, have tended to become hardened over preferences not being catered to, not doing it the way we want it done.
And Lord, if that's the attitude of our hearts, we've missed the whole point. We've missed it. Worship is all about you, Jesus. Help us to condition our hearts under the leading and guidance of your Holy Spirit to worship you in spirit and in truth from the depths of our hearts for who you are. Lord, it, it's difficult to separate who you are from what you do for us. But Lord, somehow in that mixture, we, we come to this understanding that who you are and what you do for us is all intertwined. And it's out of our gratitude for all of that, who you are and all that you've blessed us with that we worship you this morning.